All right, Hosea chapter 11, uh, standing with me if you're able uh, for the reading of God's holy word. Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares Yahweh. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So we began looking at this extended passage here in the heart of the book of Hosea last week, beginning at chapter 6, verse 4, and it runs all the way through chapter 13 and verse 3. And this is the heart of the Lord's complaint against Israel, speaking of their faithfulness, and it's characterized in a couple of places, as we noted last week, as faithfulness that is like a morning cloud. And we talked about that whole idea of morning clouds last week and how we think of them. Certainly, we get a lot of rain or we get a lot of snow like we've done here. And maybe you noticed just the other day uh, when things started warming up after all that snow. If you drove through the valley, it was choked with uh, morning clouds, with fog down there in the river river bottom. And uh, some of the other valleys, I'm sure, around it was uh, much the same. When we think of those morning clouds, and there's something that uh, about them that uh, we look at and we understand 
if we think about this, what the Lord is saying about them. They come, they're there, they're, they're, uh, they, they, they look impressive to begin with, they can be dense to see through, and yet they don't last, and they don't really do a whole lot. They look substantial, in other words, but they don't last. And that's the point that uh, the Lord is making here with Israel. Last time, as uh, we uh, kind of opened up this discussion, we spent some time not only in chapter 6 and 7, but also in chapter 8, and noted that morning clouds can be really thick. They can look great, but they uh, really are thick with hypocrisy. And we talked about the nature of hypocrisy, hypocritical talk, hypocritical zeal, sounded good, calling on God's name. They cry out to God, uh, Lord God, my God, I know you. We know you. And yet the Lord's indictment against them was that they did not know God. No, no matter how much they claimed that they did, they really did not know him at all. They knew about him. They knew his rituals and so on. But they did not know him in such a way that it changed their lives before him. Their talk is hypocritical. Their zeal is hypocritical. We noted in chapter 8, verse 11, that Ephraim, the, one of the tribes there standing really for uh, the northern kingdom, is that Ephraim has made all these altars, lots and lots of altars. But it says in chapter 8, verse 11, Ephraim's made many altars for sin. They have become for him altars for sinning. Uh, they were zealous, but they were creating all these things to worship gods of their own devising. And, uh, and so, you know, it looked like they were really religious, but, well, in a way they were really religious. Uh, it, just, it was false and uh, hypocritical because they, did, they didn't. And it wasn't like they were ignorant of who God was and what God had done. And that got rehearsed again here in chapter 11, which I just read. As the Lord said, look at all the things that I did, and what are they doing? They're still running after everybody else. So that hypocritical activity that is, was ongoing, that came out of their talk and their zeal, um, noting uh, chapter 6 and verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, they... They were going through the motions, but the Lord didn't have any regard for those sacrifices because they were not coming from hearts that were truly his. They were coming from hypocritical hearts. Now, last time I mentioned to you the idea uh, uh, to think about that uh, this next point here, a little play on words, but that morning clouds are all wet. Uh, if you ever walked out in a fog, you know, walking and, and uh, been in a particularly a thick fog, when you come back, are you wet or dry? You're wet. Um, and yet it's not the kind of wet, it, it kind of gets into your bones, it kind of soaks your clothes, and yet it doesn't really do any good for anything because it burns off pretty quickly. But morning clouds uh, can... Uh, 
can soak you and soak you to the point where you, you don't want to be out in them anymore, you'd, you'd like to see them gone, and yet uh, you're, kind of, you're kind of stuck in there. It's easy to get lost in those really thick uh, clouds, particularly if you're not on a road or something or out in the woods. You know, sin is that way. Sin like morning clouds is that way. It not only blinds you, obscures your vision, but it tends to penetrate to the very core of your souls until your entire mind and heart is soured against God. And we see that uh, all too often in the culture around us, both within the church and without. It was uh, interesting. I've always been a West Coast guy. When I went back east to college in, in South Carolina, it was interesting. Um, people would come down. I was, you know, it was, everything was new to me. It was a whole new culture. But I'd see all these people that would come down from the north, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin and New England and that sort of thing. And they'd come down and talk about how, how uh, cold it was in South Carolina in the winter. Well, what was the difference? Well, in Michigan, up there in the winter, um, in the summer, it can be kind of humid up there, but in the winter, it tends to dry out. This is a drier, a drier cold. In South Carolina, it wasn't quite as cold, but it was really humid. And they'd have ice storms, all that sort of thing. And the wind would blow, and that humid air, you know, some, you know what I'm talking about. A few of you have been down there. That humid, cold air just cut through you. And these everybody would be bundled up like Eskimos, and it wouldn't be really all that cold as far as the temperature is concerned, but because of the cold, because of the dampness, it got in deep. And I, so I was, as I was thinking about morning clouds, morning clouds can just you go out there, and it may not be actually all that cold as far as the thermometer is concerned, but that humidity, it just, you just get a chill, and it's hard to get warm. It's that kind of thing. And so I was kind of looking at this um, idea of the characteristic of morning clouds this way. And what caught my eye was in chapter 11 and verse 7, which I just read, where it says, My people are bent, uh, this verse 7, are bent on turning away from me. My people are bent on turning away from me. Now, that uh, word, turning away, that phrase, turning away, translates a, a word that um, <clears throat> in other translations would say backsliding. My people are bent on backsliding for me is a good, a good uh, translation. If you take this from the, the uh, Hebrew word here, um, the, uh, it's uh, meshubah, if you care to know. Anyway, it has the idea of of turning back from something or apostatizing, apostasy. <clears throat> now, this word um, is used twice in Hosea, one here in chapter 11, verse 7, and also in chapter 14, or verse 4. Um, the root of this word means to return or to turn away, just in a general way. Uh, it is the 12th, most frequently used word in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, 
Um, it's the key to the doctrine of repentance, of turning away. But this adds an extra little syllable on it that intensifies it and makes it basically um, a turning back again. And, and because if you're going to be walking with the Lord, you've already turned once, presumably, from your sins and from the world unto the Lord. But this is a turning back again. You are heading back in the other direction. You're abandoning the God who redeemed you. So there's a rebellion aspect to this, a revolt, um, a defection aspect to this word that's used here. And uh, that word um, apostasy comes from the, the Greek equivalent of this word. And that it, it's tied in very, very uh, closely with the idea of changing your loyalties. Now, as we read through this passage, I hope you caught the flavor of what God was saying to them. I have done all these things for you. I provided every single thing. I pulled you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I did all these things. And you're turning around and trying to go back. Instead of being loyal to me, who has been loyal to you, you are being disloyal, rebellious, and you're defecting from your rightful allegiance to the God who delivered you. There's a, in apostasy, there's an idea of open, an open defiance of the powers that be, of, of, of authority, with the, with the presumed intent of overthrowing it. So this is not a light word. And this is not a light thing that Israel is being accused of. And this is not a light thing for us to, to ponder and examine ourselves or where, where we are before the Lord. Are we walking in loyalty towards Him? Or are we find, constantly finding ourselves turning back again from the One who delivered us and going back, striving to go back to find our pleasures in the things of the world? This kind of apostasy, this kind of, of rebellion is not a casual light thing. It's not the spur-of-the-moment kind of sin. Um, try not to get on a big rabbit trail here when we think about the... But it's really not really a, a rabbit trail at all. <clears throat> we have here already the discussion of, of sacrifices and so on. We've seen that in this section. In the sacrifices uh, that were given to the people through Moses, the provision was made in these sacrifices for, for uh, sins that were inadvertent, unplanned, uh, not, uh, not uh, contemplated beforehand. It, over and over again in the Mosaic Code, if someone deliberately set out premeditated sinning as a characteristic of their life, those sacrifices were not efficacious for that kind of sin. Sobering thing. Kind of, kind of a hard line to draw because a, a lot of our sins, you know, we think, yeah, I'll do this anyway in spite of it. But it seems to be more of a premeditated desire to 
completely cast off any authority. And uh, there was no sacrifice for that. None. That could be that God would consider efficacious or a covering. That seems to be kind of what's going on here. The Lord is not just saying, well, you slipped up. Well, in a weakness of the moment, you gave in to temptation. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an, an apostate is one who knows what God has said and says, I'm not having it. I'm working against this. I'm going the other way. And particularly a person who as the writer of Hebrews would say, had, had known the things of God and known his blessings and seen him in action and turn away and say, nope, I'm not having it. The Lord says, he's not coming back. There's no forgiveness for that. So all of that to say, <laughs> kind of a roundabout way to explain my thinking as far as this image of morning clouds being all wet and soaking in. It's not superficial it gets deep into the heart of who we are. If this rebellion comes from this, it shows that we are soaked with apostasy. And what does that apostasy look like? And here's where we really need to pay attention to what we see here in Hosea and, and examine ourselves regarding our standing before the Lord and our desires toward Him. Let's think of uh, turn back to chapter 7. As I mentioned last week, I'm not going to try to go line by line through this whole section, but rather hit the highlights and the themes that are in it. In chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, we read this. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue all night. Their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. So this, this oven imagery. Now what is going on with that? <clears throat> Think about a baker, and this is, you know, we have our ovens now, you know, all easy, you know, it's like programming the space shuttle. You know, you can do all kinds of marvelous things. They didn't have those then, right? So they uh, heated them with wood or some other fuel. And uh, anybody that has, which is probably many of you, anybody that has a wood stove or wood fireplace knows exactly, if you stop for a minute, what's going on here in the imagery. But it's using an oven. A baker heats an oven, <clears throat> He gets it heated up, puts the dough in there, and then banks the fire so that the dough can rise in low heat. Okay, and then, and then once, once uh, it lets that go overnight, and then in the morning, stokes the fire, gets it going back up so they can actually bake the bread. And that's really what you see going on here, the stoking, the, the banking of the fire, then the, the stirring it up um, again. Israel's lust for sin. And it was kind of represented through, as you saw here in this passage, through the, the, the priests, through the kings, through the leadership, uh, as they led the way in sin. The image here is that their 
their desire for wickedness only paused long enough for sleep, and even then their dreams were filled with evil. That's the image that's going on here. And, and any excuse then to, to stoke it up and, and awaken those things, uh, they awake to devour their judges. We read there. It's like, what's going on with that? In other words, they're not paying attention to any law but the law of their own pleasure. Note that last phrase there in verse 7. None of them calls upon me. This is an apostasy that goes deep into the desires of fallen man. And for those that, lest we think that this only is about those who are outside the church, who is the Lord talking to? He's talking to his covenant people, to those whom he has delivered, to them uh, from, from bondage, to those whom he has blessed and given his word and revealed himself over and over again. He's not talking about the fallen world out there. Really, when we look at those who are outside the knowledge of God, we wouldn't refer to them in their error and rebellion as apostates. Because they never knew deliverance. An apostate is one who has known the good things of God, who at one time has submitted himself or herself to God's revelation and law, and then rebelled and turned against it and gone his own way. May God keep us from ever being numbered among them. If that happens, it's because our desires are apostate to begin with. We're, we're consumed with ourselves. And it soaks in to the depth of our soul. Those desires spring out of apostate thinking. If we continue on in chapter 7, look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They've got all kinds of grief, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of misery, but they won't call upon God. They'll call upon everybody else. They'll wrap themselves all up in their own head and then wonder why they can't get any relief. They won't call upon the Lord. Although I, for grain and wine, they gash themselves, they rebel against me. They want all these things. They're willing to sacrifice all kinds of stuff to get their pleasures. Um, but they rebel against the one who's the source of all life and every good thing. This is a desire problem, but it's also a thinking problem. It, I, I hope that as I said those words just a moment ago, that in your own minds, the thought went across, uh, the, thought, the thought came across that's just stupid. That's just stupid. But sin makes you stupid. It warps your thinking to where you can't consider even from a sheer logical perspective to look to, instead of looking to the only one who can supply your needs, you will sacrifice, you will gash yourself, you will 
inflict harm upon yourself to try, and there's all kinds of ways you can inflict harm upon yourselves. Um, I don't necessarily mean in the sense of of uh, literally cutting yourself or suicide or those kinds of things. Oh, that's part of it. But also just the harm that you do to your body, to your soul, to your relationships and everything else you do in your pursuit of the things that only God can give you. But you want to do it on your own. It doesn't make any sense. And yet we do it, do we not? Um, we'll read on through 16. Um, he says, or 15, though, although I trained and strengthened their arms, they devised evil against me. They return, but not upward, um, or not to the Most High is an alternative here. They don't return to God, in other words. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. You know, when we are soaked to the bone with apostasy in our desires and our thinking, um, our thinking takes a turn from um, logic and from reason to what I'll use as a term to cleverness. Cleverness. I take that from the word here for devise in verse 15. They devise evil against me, which is one of the most ridiculous things to think about that, you know, the puny man shaking his fist at, God, at the almighty God and we're going we're gonna to bring him down. And of course, in, uh, you know, that can, that can happen um, in the literal sense of, of um, apostates in the church seeking after uh, the positions and the welfare of uh, those who resist them. I think of classic in our own, our own history as a church of J. Gresham Machen um, in the 1930s when he withstood the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA because of the wickedness and the apostasy that was in the mission boards as well as in the General Assembly. He withstood it and the others with him. And uh, instead of listening to his godly counsel, the General Assembly devised plans to put him out of the church, which they were successful in doing. And uh, then from there, he went on uh, with others to establish well, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and out of them came the Bible Presbyterian Church. You know, uh, so the Lord's plans were not thwarted or undone, in, in spite of the, the wickedness of men that were devising plans against God that would be you know, worked, uh, shown in working against uh, God's servants. And the Lord, indeed, Jesus said that that's what would happen, did he not? The word devise <clears throat> is not really a mysterious word at all. It's the idea of, uh, it would be used much in the same way that we would think of it. Cunning, plotting, um, scheming, that kind of idea. Um, it, it, it can be used also in a positive sense of just really pondering and meditating on something, uh, planning, um, uh, all planning is not a bad thing. Um, I used to, I used to th think it, it was. Mostly, I look back now and know it's just simply because I was lazy. <clears throat> uh, but nonetheless, planning's a good thing. Obviously, it could be overdone, 
um, to where your plans can become your God, but planning's a good thing as a general rule. But here, if someone is foolishly trying to uh, think that God is so uh, inept and unable to, to defend himself that uh, he uh, is really of no account so that I can just plan and do my things in spite of him is the height of foolishness. In the process, they invent lies against him. Verse 13, Woe to them, they've strayed from me. They have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They attribute God, failure to God. God hasn't done this. God hasn't done that. God is not really just. God doesn't really love. God this, that, and the other. God's not able to, to uh, uh, redeem, or God's not able to <clears throat> deliver. Um, lie after lie after lie. This comes out of apostate hearts. People who once knew God, or at least knew about God, but chose to believe lies instead and turned away from him. And uh, just like um, we talked about hypocritical activities last week, well, there can be, those activities are seen a little more detail here. They, they go from mere, mere hypocrisy to out and out apostate activities uh, that are in direct violation of what God has said. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood as robbers lie in wait for a man so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Um, apostate activities led by the priests. Murder, theft, adultery. This kind of defilement. Uh, villainy, the Lord calls it. Lying, chapter 7, verse 3. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. And we already saw the other passage there uh, uh, verse uh, 13 about speaking lies against God. In chapter, in chapter 12 and verse, uh, or excuse me, chapter 11 and verse 12, which we read just a little bit earlier, that lying is mentioned again. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit. Essentially, what the Lord is saying here is, the image is in the temple, but basically saying that, that they have misrepresented God to the world. And I think that misrepresentation um, should not be limited in our thinking to just the words that are said but also by the deeds that are done. Certainly, the action, their actions throughout this whole passage uh, are, are in view as they have walked against God. Um, when, you, when you live in a way that is pleasing to the devil and the world, and you claim to be a Christian, what are you saying about God? Because people, they see what they see. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. But if my speech is full of corruption and my actions are full of deceit, my work ethic stinks, um, name it, 
Is it any wonder that the world looks at Christians, or at, the, at those that claim to be Christians, that live no different than the fallen world and go, why should I want that? When I can live that way without having somebody trying to guilt me all the time. And if that's God, I don't want it. We're surrounding him with lies. That's, I think, what's going on here. It's a misrepresentation of God. And it's an evidence of apostasy. Let's not even begin to go there, people. Another one, chapter 10, verse 13. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. So this is all evidence of apostasy. Um, you Basically, you've put all your efforts into living wickedly. And things aren't going well. Um, the fruit of lies is misery and deceit and, and um, judgment. But what's the reason behind those apostate things? Because you, it says, have trusted in your power and in the multitude of your warriors. It's pride. It's pride. Pride is at the root of apostasy, and it's something that we all have to fight all the time. Because it, talk about going deep, it springs out of the inner, innermost depths of our hearts, the wickedness that pride causes where we think we're better than others we think that we know more than others we think that we are more capable than others we think we don't need god we don't need anybody else we don't need anything but ourselves essentially and this and of course as we all know pride can take all kinds of forms it can be out and out arrogant or it can it can have a false kind of humility oh you know well i'm this that and the other and and uh, because, after all, I've, I'm, I'm going through these things right now and nobody else understands. It's just pride. It's just pride. And we need to be on guard against it. That we don't trust in our own power and in the multitude of our warriors. Wicked alliances are another thing that come out of apostasy. Again, in chapter 7, Strangers, verse 8, strangers devour his strength, Ephraim's strength. And he doesn't know it, doesn't recognize that. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Um, anybody here have gray hairs that you don't know about? <laughs> Most of us, we see some gray hairs, um, particularly maybe, I, I don't know. I don't want to put it more on ladies. Sometimes guys can be just as... Uh, persnickety about this after all you know that whole Grecian formula thing there's a couple of you that don't need to really worry about it right now um, but most of us are aware we see the gray hairs we go ah where did that come from you know with the Lord is saying old age has crept up on them and, and the gray hair is a symbol of Lessening of ability, lessening of, of uh, capability, and not even aware of it. 
it's, I, I, there's a meme that's been out on Facebook for a long time. I see it show up about every year or two. Somebody else posted it like it's the first time, but it's still pretty funny. That's probably why it happens, where you see this kind of middle-aged guy standing there leaning on a fence and, or whatever, and it says, the leading cause of injury in old men is them thinking that they're still young men. And it, it's, that's kind of the idea. You know, your strength is less like Samson in all of his glory and all of his strength. When, he's, when he finally caves to Delilah and tells him the secret of his strength and he thinks, I'm going to go out like before and I'm going I'm to show him how strong I am. And he goes out and they bind him and so on because he did not know. It says right there, he did not know that his strength had left him. Samson was an apostate. He's a prime example of an apostate. Seems to be repentance at the end of his life. But um, the Lord had his purposes, even as an apostate, to work judgment. But the judgment would fall upon Samson eventually as well because of his sin. And he just, he was dependent upon his strength. Um, the Lord took it away and he didn't even know it. And wicked alliances are that way. In chapter 12, we read this. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. What is, we read that a little earlier. What does that mean? He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried to Egypt. He's trying to say the Ephraim has made all these alliances that he thinks is going to protect him. He's going everywhere, except the one place that he should go, and that's to God himself. And so at the end of uh, chapter 7, um, there, just destruction is going to be upon them. Verse 13, they've rebelled against God by making alliances with the wicked. Um, you know, as a church, both locally and um, nationally, there's a lot of pressures to you know go along to get along. There really are a lot of pressures to say, well, you know, for the for the good of of you know even the name of Jesus or for the good of the community or whatever, uh, we need to not be uh, too worried about um, who we link our arms with uh, to accomplish this goal or that goal or whatever. But it, it, it makes a difference. If we go looking to the world to help the church do our job, there's a problem. It will end up in apostasy if we're not careful. We need to trust in the Lord to do our work. Not trust in, you know, however many other uh, groups are out there that come along saying, hey, we can help you. We can do this. We've got, we got money. We've got personnel. We've got ideas. We can do all these other things. Uh, and essentially saying we don't need to worry about, you know, doctrinal faithfulness or, or oneness of mind. We just have this goal, and we just need to all get in it together. That's very, talk about it's slippery outside. Talk about slippery. That's slippery. And it can get to the point where you put the brakes on and nothing happens. That is, to my mind, that is, when driving, that is one of the most terrifying 
heart-sickening things is when you are trying to steer one way or brake, but the vehicle is not paying attention. And you don't even have to be going very fast. We think, oh, it's reckless. Well, we, we, we look at people running around out here and they drive too fast up and down the roads and we think they're going to end up in a ditch or they're going to hurt somebody or hurt themselves. You know, four-wheel drive doesn't mean four-wheel stop. You know, all those kinds of things, right? <clears throat> when I pulled in here this morning, I circled around here so I could let Karen out right by the, by the steps so she didn't have to walk on the ice. And... I stopped. I mean, I'm creeping. Just creeping. I don't think the, the speedometer was even registering anything. Spun around and tried to brake to a stop. Applied the brakes and the truck just went. It just kept sliding until it hit the, the, uh, the, the traffic, the, the pole that we've got there on the ground to, to keep you from running into the building. It worked. I can tell you it worked. I wasn't going fast. I mean, we can look at these alliances that are out there and people that come along and want to help us uh, do the work of Jesus Christ who, who uh, are his enemies, thinking particularly of the government at this point, that wants to come along with faith-based uh, ministries and help us do our job. Well, we'll go slow. After all, there's no real strings attached. I've heard people say that to me. I'm like, okay. We're going to go slow. You can go slow and still slide off a cliff. Wicked alliances are an evidence of an apostate mindset that doesn't think God's enough. Okay? So let's be on guard against those. And then... Um, obviously one of the things that's throughout this section in chapter 8, 9, um, 10, 11, all the way through it, uh, all the way up into chapter 13, is um, what we more obviously think of as apostasy, and that is idolatry. In chapter 9, um, the Lord says to them, Do not rejoice, O Israel, do not exalt as other nations do, for you have played the whore departing from your God. You have loved a prostitute's pay on all the threshing floors. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your ancestors. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. Back in Numbers chapter 23 and also in chapter 25, um, the kingdoms of Moab and Midian... Um, wanted to attack Israel, but they didn't have enough people. They were, they, they were outnumbered. So, um, do you remember, they, the, the Midianites especially, um, and Moabites, they called upon a guy named Balaam to come and curse Israel, which God didn't let him do. And we won't go into the whole, that whole story. Balaam failed to do the curse. Uh, God didn't let that happen. But so what did Moab and Midian do? They changed tactics. Instead of a frontal attack, they sent their women over to Israel to entice the Israelites and joined, talking about wicked alliances, 
to join in marriages and then bring their household gods in. It was a backdoor plan, and it worked. Israel turned from the one true and living God and turned unto idols. And the judgment that came upon them was pretty swift. At that time, you can read about that in the book of Numbers. But that's, that's how insidious apostasy can be. We can, we can win on the frontal attack uh, uh, at, from that aspect and lose it by not guarding the back door. And we let idols of other kinds come into our lives in a different way and uh, turn our hearts and minds away from the one true and living God under the things that we think are important in this world. Now let's wrap this up. Um, turn over to chapter 13 and verse 3. We read there, Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud or the morning mist, and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. All of those images have to do with things that are temporary, that don't last. Now, in our weather reports, we're generally happy when we hear that the clouds are going away, because we, we, we like the sun. Uh, we, we feel like we have enough rain. But for this society, the more the clouds stayed, that, that maybe the dew that was there could possibly have some benefit for the ground. And even better yet, more than dew, if they'd actually rain, that'd be wonderful. And they could stay there and, and nourish the ground that, uh, because much more arid um, climate that way. So to, while us, it's welcome news, uh, to those that are dependent upon the rain to water their crops, the image is one of disappointment here. When those clouds disappear for them, as their hopes for a good crop were diminished. Israel had begun with a lot of promise, of promise of fruitfulness. Israel um, proved to be a disappointment and that all it produced was idolatry, uh, nettles and thorns, if you will, of wickedness instead of the fruits of righteousness. And that's because their faithfulness, like the morning clouds, didn't last. Starting off well is great, beloved. Finishing well is better. Morning clouds are real, no real substance. Burned off in the heat of the the sun. Morning cloud faithfulness is no real substance. It gets burned off in the heat of our passion for sin, if we're not careful. Let us not be like that morning, have the faithfulness that's like a morning cloud that doesn't last. You can start your walk off with Christ looking like you're really going to produce something by the grace of God only to wither away into nothing because you find that you're no longer devoted to him, that you love other things more. If that's the case, your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. It's a mark of judgment. Let us be faithful throughout the long days of our lives until Jesus comes. 
repent of our sins, cry to him for mercy, and learn to love him again with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Let us not have faithfulness that's like a morning cloud. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are faithful. That unlike morning clouds, you do not uh, dissipate and disappear when uh, trials come, when life is difficult. But that you are the one with whom there is no shadow of turning, no changeability. You are always the one true and living God and faithful to your promises. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness to you. Let us not be like those who fall away when the heat comes, who fall away and shrivel up when the, when the thorns uh, and the weeds arise, uh, arise around us. <clears throat> that we do not quickly abandon you to the point of not just walking away, but rebelling against you uh, because of the enticements of the world around us. Help us to stand fast, to believe with an ever-growing and steadfast belief. Lord, let our testimony uh, not be one that, that throws up uh, <clears throat> a hedge of lies about you obscuring who you truly are from the world because of our sins. Lord, I pray that uh, before you we would walk in holiness, justice, truth, and faithfulness. And Lord, keep us in that faithfulness, growing, uh, going from grace to grace and glory to glory until that day when Christ returns and takes us home and makes all things new. We pray this in faith and in confidence that you will bring it about for Jesus' sake. Amen.